Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Dr. Will Cole, thank you very much for joining us today. If you wouldn't mind, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm a functional medicine doctor. So what that means, I'll define that, I guess, in a moment. But my job, I run a, a functional medicine telehealth center. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth clinics in the world over 13 plus years ago at this point. So my day job is I get to consult people like we're talking right now. We run labs for them. We get to the root cause of why they're struggling with different chronic health problems. So we deal with people that have different autoimmune inflammation issues, digestive problems, hormone problems, nervous system dysregulation, different inflammatory issues. So that's kind of my passion is to figure out what's the upstream like causation or drivers, the pieces to their health puzzle, and then give them tools to overcome their health problems and to reclaim their health. So that's my day job. And then from that focus with our patients, I've written a few books about these topics and I host a podcast called The Art of Being Well, where we talk about these topics as well. So that's kind of in a nutshell, but functional medicine is in short evidence-based alternative medicine, but the Cleveland Clinic here in the States has a functional medicine center. They're, all the physicians there at the Cleveland Clinic's Functional Medicine Center is trained through what's called the Institute for Functional Medicine or IFM. And that's who's trained myself and my telehealth team. So that's, we're just like major nerds, basically, when it comes to like wellness and getting people healthy. Thank you for that. It sounds like you spotted a problem well before the pandemic in terms of telehealth. What made you think that this was something you needed to focus on? When 13 years ago, we didn't even have the language. What we called it is a virtual functional medicine clinic because we didn't really have the word telehealth. And at some point along the way, probably it was before the pandemic, but telehealth is increasingly over 13, 14 years was more common. And we would hear, okay, yeah, that's what we've been doing for the past 13 years. We just called it something different. But the real reason was it was born out of necessity. I was in Western Pennsylvania, and a lot of people aren't in Western Pennsylvania. (laughs) That's really what it was. It was a geographical limitations and me figuring out, okay, I was one of the first people on mass really talking about this field of healthcare on podcasts and online and writing articles about it and kind of aggregating the research in the clinical nutrition, like medical journals and different scientific journals and talking about it in easy to understand ways. So there'd be lots of people in different parts of the country and world that wanted access to this. So we just logistically worked out the what were the barriers to get people labs, to get people access and kind of working out all the kinks. So yeah, we did not plan on a pandemic, but nothing changed for us since 2020. If anything, it just grew the clinic because more people knew, oh, this was an option because they were forced to realize that a lot of things could be done differently, not just healthcare. Obviously, we're not replacing someone's primary care physician. You can't telehealth physical exams, right? (laughs) There's some things that you're going to have to go to your local doctor to. And we do a lot of group telehealth calls with their local doctor to collaborate with them. So it really is a collaborative, positive thing. But yeah, we just have a lot of years of experience doing it. Okay. Regarding functional health, it seems like this is a problem that's not being addressed by pills and I guess more traditional medicine. What are people not understanding about what it is that you do? Well, I think that one of the problems with healthcare today is it's very, like many things in our world, has devolved into this, this sort of toxic tribalism where it's 
us versus them and like we're better and they're less than it's this god complex it's this constant otherism when it comes to the way that we do healthcare or politics or social media or diets or whatever we're talking about and i really feel like when you're talking about someone's health a lot of people fall through the cracks and are confused there's a lot of disillusionment when it comes to what people should do so to me functional medicine is the best of both worlds and it, you don't have to choose between getting healthy and being evidence-based. And I think you can have the best of both worlds. And there's a time and place for the amazing, positive advancements of modern medicine. Like we have cutting edge technology in acute emergency care and life-saving surgeries. Wonderful. But when you're talking about the plight and burden of chronic health problems, which is what's plaguing a lot of people, the vast majority of people are struggling with these chronic degenerative issues like type 2 diabetes and that whole spectrum of insulin resistance and weight loss resistance and blood sugar issues, cardiometabolic issues. And that's the leading cause of heart attack and stroke, which is plaguing so many people to digestive problems and autoimmune problems. I mean, there are millions upon millions of people that are struggling with autoimmune inflammatory problems to mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And there's a whole field of research in the conventional medical journals called, it's referred to as the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's researchers looking at how does inflammation impact how our brain works? How does inflammation impact mental health. And a lot of our work here at the clinic here is educating and empowering people on the fact that mental health isn't separate from physical health. Mental health is physical health. Our brain is a part of our body just as much as anything else is. And of course, all the hormonal problems that are because of these inflammatory issues, people are struggling with hormonal imbalances. The point being, all the things I just mentioned and more, chronic health problems, they're largely overcomable, improvable, manageable, supportable, healable with conservative, lifestyle, data-driven, but lifestyle tools. So the training in the standard model of care is not set up like that. It's largely set up to diagnose the disease, which is needed, but then matching it with a corresponding medication. It's sort of this medicinal pharmaceutical matching game, which has its place and some people are alive because of medication and need to be on medication. Again, it should be both and not either or, but we just asked the question, in functional medicine, what is your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects? And that should be the litmus test. That should be the criteria in which we vet what we're doing. But yet that's oftentimes not asked. It's not the most effective option. It costs the person a lot of money. It costs the country a lot of money when it comes to economic burden and the burden of paying for these chronic diseases and disease management. And they have a lot of potential side effects. And just look at the loss of quality of life as well. So that's sort of our approach. It is data-driven. We're looking at labs and we're seeing data improve, but we're just asking that question of what's your most effective option that's causing you the least amount of side effects. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think there's a macro and a micro component to it. A micro level is just an education and empowerment issue because it's not talked about and we're doing a lot to educate people on their options. And I want people to have the choice on what they should do. And on a macro level, it's kind of a trickle down issue is that the system's just not set up like that. It's set up for disease management, not for optimal health. It's in many ways, sick care system, not truly a healthcare system. Thank you for that. I see it largely as complimentary and I appreciate your micro macro observation or explanation there. It looks kind of like a chicken or egg sort of thing where there's like problems of the mind cause problems in the body, problems of the body cause problems of the mind. 
and I acknowledge they're both connected. I'm curious though, because it seems from an outsider perspective, like a layman, not a doctor, it seems like there's been an uptick in the last, say, 30, 40 years of autoimmune type of issues. Is that true? And if so, what do you think is the underlying cause? Is it a societal shift towards like independent living away from multi-generational households, for example? I was curious, what are your thoughts are on that? It's a confluence of factors. I think there is better education, better awareness around these topics, better diagnostics, an increasingly informed populace that want to have answers that are running labs and lots of research. There's exploding research over the past 15, 20 years and autoimmunity. And you're right, it's absolutely the chicken or the egg. Is it just better awareness around this? But I think if you look not just in the past 20 years, but really beyond that, even if you take better diagnostics and education and awareness around these issues like autoimmune issues as a component as to why we're hearing more and more about this, I certainly think that's part of it. But nobody, even the most conservative mainstream statistician is going to tell you that it's not solely due to that. We see epidemic rise of chronic health problems, not to better awareness solely, but to because we're seeing more and more cases like this. I mean, you look at immune-mediated inflammatory issues, inflammation is a product of the immune system. So not just autoimmune issues, but I would say opening up that definition to inflammatory problems at large, which cardiometabolic problems, you know, other cancer, heart disease are also inflammatory in nature too. But we're seeing more and more levels of this because of what researchers refer to as, so this isn't my opinion, this is what's looked at in the scientific journals as what they call an evolutionary mismatch or an epigenetic genetic mismatch, that the majority of our genes is sort of the, the theory of why we're seeing this. The majority of our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 plus years, but yet our world has changed very dramatically in a finite period of time when you're putting that in context with the totality of human history. So it's our genes are basically living in a brave new world. And this, this chasm between what we've evolved with in the world around us is triggering genetic predispositions that have always been there for 10,000 plus years, but are being triggered, being awoken because of this evolutionary mismatch. So that involves a lot of variables there. There's the foods we're eating or the foods we're not eating. And then you have to look at the research around soil microbiome health and its intimate connection to our gut microbiome health, which our gut microbiome, which is all the trillions of bacteria in our gut, it's home to 75% of our immune system. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. So we have to understand inflammation. We have to look at where the predominance of the immune system resides, which is in our gut, which is part of our gastrointestinal system and microbiome specifically, which is separate than us, but part of us, right? We co-evolve with this. So we have to look at foods and its impact on our microbiome. We have to look at environmental toxins that were not exposed to a few gener just a few generations ago. We have to look at biotoxins that were always there, but are being stressing an already stressed out system like chronic Lyme disease, other bacterial viral issues, mold toxins that again have been around since human history never was healthy for humans. But it's like the straw that broke the camel's back in many ways because of what we've done to our, our ecosystem of which we're intimately connected with. And then we have to look at chronic stress and unresolved trauma, these mental emotional things that are so deeply interconnected to people that have autoimmune issues and other chronic health problems. So the point is, it's multifactorial. It's not just one thing. It's a confluence of factors. It's a perfect storm of variables that need to be looked at, but we should not normalize it. You know, these chronic problems are certainly ubiquitous, 
But just because something's common doesn't necessarily make it normal. And chronic health problems, certainly ubiquitous, but these things I said earlier are largely healable, reversible, overcomable. So if that's the case, why would we want to settle for anything less? And that's something that I see astralized in people's lives every day. That sounds fascinating. When you were describing that, it sounds like, first of all, you're never going to run out of work. Second of all, it's almost like you're an astrophysicist, but like internally looking at the body matched with like a historian looking at the overall, like you said, the evolution. And it's really fascinating that there's like these kind of hidden like epigenetics, like you say, like hidden kind of piano keys that haven't quite been hit yet. And then all of a sudden there's something like a knock-on effect that finally triggers them. And then that triggers something else. And it's it just sounds like you're trying to make order out of chaos. <laughs> I've never had someone put it exactly like that. I love it. Yeah, we've in many ways, we feel like clinical Sherlock Holmes in a way. And every year, there's more and more research coming out of the scientific journals, A, giving us further data on ways we can help people, and B, in many ways, substantiating things we're doing, right? Research is really catching up with what we're doing in this way, where we don't always have the best research. I mean, this is a very quickly evolving space. But we want to be at the cutting edge because we see so many people falling through the cracks versus that us versus them, like sticking that person in a box where they're labeled with that diagnosis code and they're given X, Y, and Z and X, Y, and Z are just basically different like labels for the same medication. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. generic versus on brand. People are yearning for something different and you have to do something different to see something different. And yeah, I like the astrophysicist historian because I, I love history and astrophysics. So it works well go. for me. Yeah, you've given me a a lot of great quotes already. So thank you for that as well. I imagine you've helped a lot of people. Do you have any like kind of top of mind stories that you'd like to share? Like what's a good success case that you could share with us? So many. I am humbled by that. And I don't say that flippantly because this is a sacred responsibility to be a part of people that are going through complex health issues. It is something that I don't lose that gravity. And these are also very intimate stories and very personal and heavy many times. So we've had patients that ask us because they know how isolating these things can be, that when they go through this journey and come out on the other side of impossible, they want to share their journey, right? And they many of them end up maybe not professionally changing their careers, but on the side, they become health coaches and doctors and nurses, and they want to at least do some training in healthcare because they want to formally help somebody else, even if it's just a hobby because they're so passionate about this. So we've had many conversations on my podcast that they go back to listen to past episodes. We've had many patients that have talked about their journey and on our website at drwillcole.com, if they go to the consultation page, like hundreds and hundreds of people have asked over the years to share their journey in written form. So they literal love letters to people that are going through similar things, which is really powerful. But one that comes to mind is actually somebody that was earlier on in my career. Any clinician will tell you that it's those early years, there's something like formative and some like anchor moments that you think of and you go back to often when you reminisce on your years in practice. And it was a patient that actually is in many ways an avatar to people that I've seen over the years. It's not a unique story. It's just special because it happened very early on in my career. It was a patient that was wheeled in before the pandemic. We were telehealth, but people would fly in or drive in for their initial consult. They didn't have to do that, but people kind of liked that sort of ending and then have the rest via telehealth. So this was, they flew in for their first appointment and they came in and she was pushed in a wheelchair from her husband. They've been married for decades. And this woman had a severe brain fog, cognitive issues, obviously was limited from a biomechanical standpoint. She had trouble walking. 
And she was a shell of herself from what I got from her husband and talking with her. She really was not fully there. And we ran labs. We did a full health history. We spent about an hour, hour and a half initially just on health history and running labs for multiple data points and getting objective data on what's going on in her case. And amongst many other things, she had mold toxicity. She had very, very low cholesterol. Her conventional doctors put her on a lot of cholesterol-lowering medication, which has its place, again, said across the board, but it just was too over-medicated and it was not the most effective option causing her the least amount of side effects. And her brain, I mean, all of our brain is 25% of all our body's cholesterol is in our brain. Our brain is 60% fat. So in many ways was beyond, it wasn't just the cholesterol medication, it was the mold toxicity, a lot of chronic inflammation because of that. So a lack of nutrients and an overabundance of chronic neuroinflammation. We coordinated with her prescribing doctor, really worked on dealing with the upstream issues of what was driving the inflammation in the first place. She was, I saw her online months later as we were monitoring and just slowly evolving, like her health was coming alive. And she was able to walk with a cane and, and then she didn't need the cane anymore. She had increased energy. She had came to life, literally. It was just so stark contrast between who I met and who I was seeing online a month later. Not a quick fix by any means, but it was something that she said that why I'm bringing this awesome human being up as she's something she said she said i was planning my funeral when i met you now i'm planning vacations with my family and that what makes me think of wow like that's what's at stake for so many people they think this is my lot in life i'm just getting older i'm just this is who i am and they identify with their chronic health problems i think it's it's when you think of how short life is even for the longest living of us and looking at the quality of life that's lost with these chronic health issues it makes you want to do better. That's a beautiful story. I imagine that must be so reaffirming. And there's no going back after that. Like you're all in and just helping more and more people. 100%. I love it. We start our every day at the clinic. I'm kind of, our routine is my friend. So I, for the past 13 years, we start our day off for people that are local to the clinic. We have people that are working remotely. But the people that are here at the clinic, the telehealth clinic, we start every morning off with prayer and meditation and going over the case reviews and praying over each one of the people on the schedule and realizing that they're Oh, this lady was Blanche. Her name was Blanche. I'm not breaking any HIPAA because she shared her story before. <laughs> 13 years later, there's lots of Blanches. There's lots of people that are going through similar things. So I want to hold space and for the people, no matter where they're at in their journey and really don't lose sight of that. So there has to be that science and art, that duality between what we do. And you can't lose the art part. Like now everybody's not just a, some abstract number on a paper when it comes to somebody's labs. Like what's their heart? How is this impacting the quality of life? That is huge. And that's part of being a facilitating of healing in somebody's life. It's holding both the science and art in balance. Sounds like the heart and the mind kind of as well. And that brings me to your book, Gut Feelings. And there's kind of a double entendre there, I suppose. Could you tell us like what led to you kind of developing that book and what, what's the high level takeaway for us? So it is, there is a double entendre because on a surface level, I mean, you think of these cliches, these sort of 
terms that are used in the human lexicon of gut feelings and gut instinct, and I just feel it in my gut or butterflies in my stomach. Why do we say these things, right? I mean, how did our ancestors, how did humanity know that somehow the gut was the seat of the soul? And they didn't have the randomized control trials. They didn't know this. But yet you look at the, all the fathers of modern medicine, like Hippocrates, when he said all disease begins in the gut or Paracelsus, the father of toxicology. He was known as the, the Martin Luther of medicine in the late 1400s, early 1500s in Switzerland, talked about gut health. These guys didn't have placebo control, random control trials, but they knew that the gut influenced their health. If you look at traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine in India, same thing. These guys did not have the modern technology to look at these the mechanisms of action but they knew anecdotally through experience through observation that this the gut influenced the human body in profoundly far-reaching ways and if you look at that sort of the double entendre side of it is the duality of it or the bi-directional crosstalk between the two mm. of both gut and feelings the physiological and the mental, emotional, spiritual. And we have to have a both end approach to healing, even when you're looking at that level, not just between conventional medicine and functional medicine, but also within any space of healthcare that you're talking about, dealing with the, both the physical and the mental, emotional, spiritual. And research is catching up with antiquity in many ways that we have to, that the gut is really a major part of our physical health, but also these mental, emotional, spiritual things. When you're looking at the research of chronic stress and unresolved trauma and its implication literally being stored in the body and something that we need to metabolize just as much as we would metabolize environmental toxins or you know mold toxins that we have to deal with. So this is at the such a heart of what I've seen to be so profoundly important for healing. And we're used to these complex health issues. So gut feelings is really a conversation about what I've seen clinically to deal with both the physical and the mental, emotional, spiritual, the gut and the feelings. And it's a conversation for people that are on that autoimmune inflammation spectrum that are dealing with nervous system dysregulation, because it's a lot of it's, you really can't have a conversation around, around gut and feelings without talking about the vagus nerve, right? It's a, the book's a lot about the vagus nerve, which is the largest cranial nerve in the body that's really on a physical level, a lot of people have what's called poor vagal tone in the research. The largest cranial nerve in the body that's responsible for the parasympathetic aspect of the autonomic nervous system, that resting, digesting, hormone balanced state, it's weak. And a lot of what we do and why we see great success with it is we're improving vagal tone. And you have, there's many ways to do that. But gut feelings is really a conversation on what are the science-backed ways to improve vagal tone to when you, when you hear people talking about nervous system dysregulation, what they're really meaning in part is improving vagal tone. So you can have a grounded nervous system, a regulated nervous system, so people aren't stuck in that sympathetic, fight or flight, stressed, inflamed state, which so many people find themselves somewhere on that dysregulation spectrum. Well, one more book sold. You just gave me one of my top five favorite quotes. Research is catching up to antiquity. So thank you for that. I love that. <laughs> Talking about your podcast, The Art of Being Well, one of the best things about podcasts is the two-way learning. And so what's something that you learned on your podcast? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I'm blessed to have a lot of brilliant minds on the podcast. A lot of what I do with work is, as I mentioned, holding space, listening, being curious, and like knowing what questions to follow up with. And I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying that's a you have 
you wouldn't be in this for 13 years and love what you do and not refine that skill set, which we all have. We all have. Some probably comes easier than others. But it's really my, a nature of my personality. If you know anything about the Enneagram, it's like a per, like a yeah. way that we see the world. I'm an Enneagram 5, wing 4. So it's like a researcher. So that helps me with my job a lot. In consults, it helps me with my job because I want to really research and get to the cause. And that's I'm not a podcast host. So I, I thought, okay... When I started doing podcasts years ago, it was definitely outside of my comfort zone, but I've realized that my skill set during consultations really helps me for the guest because I'm able to kind of dig deep beyond the basics and get answers. It's hard to pick like one guest or one thing that I've learned. I really can say that every episode I have had, I learned something about it. And we have such a diverse group of people. And that's one of the things I hear from about the podcast is that they'll say, well, like one episode, you're talking about gut health. The next episode, you're talking about the science of sound, right? Or like the most random, obscure things that people may not even been interested in until they listen to the episode. It mm -hmm. makes you thinking in a, in a fresh new way, which is why I call the podcast The Art of Being Well, because mm -hmm. there's a science and then there's an art. I, I don't know. There's something about the yin and the yang and these dualities that, that really speaks to me because it's, it's just intimately, it's part of our life in every way. Yes, I very much agree. I like the way that you champion the art in that as well, the art and science. I myself like photography and architecture for similar reasons. I saw it as an intersection between art and science. It sounds like you see that in your medicine and everywhere. I mean, there is a, a reason, I suppose, for the right left brain. So yeah, thank you for that. You've probably heard of like the Pareto principle, like a little bit of input for a big output or vice versa. Yeah. I was curious, what's the quick gains that someone can get for their health? One is a big thing, but it's meaning it's not easy. I don't want to be reductive to something that's complex, but it is small in the sense that the body's amazingly resilient. If you just do a little bit of these micro moments, I call them in the book, I call them metaphysical meals. They're just little micro moments of stillness that what we feed our bodies, which influences our biochemistry, it's important, but what we serve and feed our head and our heart is just as important. And it's a little bit more nonlinear, abstract to talk about, but some sort of path to presence, some sort of grounding practice, and that can look different for different people. But there's a lot of science around things like breath work and meditation and grounding and somatic practices. So treating those like you would mealtime and being consistent with it. And for the person that says, you know, oh, meditation is not for me. I mean, those are typically the people that needed to do it the most. <laughs> They're the people that are the most hypervigilant and dysregulated that any stillness or pockets of, of presence is scary because you have to kind of look inward. But that's where the healing oftentimes resides. Meet yourself where you're at. Start off low and slow because they, they can be very therapeutic to metabolize these things that are lodged in our deep within our psyche and our cells, but are hugely profoundly important. So I think that that you get a huge ROI on that. When you're talking about these micro moments of stillness, you don't have to live on an ashram and do five hours of meditation. I teach in the book and on the podcast and with patients, really small, practical, attainable, realistic ways for us to serve our head and our heart, which influences our biochemistry on a daily basis. And then on a food side of things that I do with both the gut and a feeling side, the gut side of it is soups and stews can go a long way. We're dealing with an epidemic of gut health problems and inflammatory problems. And people can oftentimes think, okay, the salad is like the epitomization of like a healthy food. There's a time and place for salads. I'm not demonizing salads. But <laughs> even in Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, they'll actually even have steamed salads to sort of break down some of the raw plant foods. So having pureed vegetables, cooked soups and stews with protein and 
healthy fats in them are really grounding and therapeutic for a stressed out gut, which impacts your brain, impacts inflammation levels, impacts hormone levels, our nervous system. So it's profoundly important. So two micro things people can do that have a huge effect on the body. Thank you for that. So what do you see as the future for telehealth and functional medicine? We've given the technological advances we're seeing with AI and who knows what's next. I think the personalization is already here. It's not, this is nothing new, but I think the conversation will continue to grow when it comes to bioindividuality and customization and curation of healthcare tools. One size don't, doesn't fit all. That's such a central part of what I do in functional medicine. I think this is a part of the human conversation right now. And when it comes to healthcare, because of functional medicine, we've been talking about this for the past 15, 20 years, even before I was in this space. So this is nothing new to us, but it's not, it's newer to the world. And you're hearing mainstream hospital systems, mainstream medical institutions talking about customized healthcare experience, bioindividuality because of functional medicine. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of what we've done and the, and the progress we've made in influencing other tangential spaces within healthcare. And I think we've seen a growing amount of democratization, decentralization of conversations over the past 15 plus years around podcasts, really, and these long form conversations. And that's trickled over to the healthcare space in many ways. It can be seen as a threat, I think, to some systems that are used to it being one way. But I would just, maybe I'm, you know, naive in saying this. I don't think it should be a threat. I think it should be really will make all worlds better. And we should be pro-choice when it comes to healthcare decisions. And I think that happens from a robust conversation of all perspectives. And that doesn't mean all perspectives are going to be right for you. And I think it's okay to for people to have choice when it comes to their healthcare. So I hopefully that's what it is, is that this doesn't have to be like, there can be a laying down of arms mm. and this sort of toxic tribalism when it comes to healthcare will go away. And really, there's a big enough tent for us to help everybody. And there's going to be different tools within the toolbox that will include some from both worlds and all worlds, even things that I didn't mention today. When you talk about the research of psychedelic medicine and somatic practices and mind-body practices, it's all there. There's enough of people to help. We should come together to want to serve people and realize we're not going to be for everybody, but there's enough people for us to help. Well, now you just got me uh, a whole list of questions I want to ask you for the next podcast. But what you said reminded me a parallel. A gentleman, a CEO of an AI generative video company in San Francisco was talking about there's a similar pushback against artificial intelligence taking away people's jobs. And we're looking at it in a complementary way, where in some senses, it allows us to be more human. And I like the way that this gentleman put it. He said, one door closes, but five windows open. And it sounds like with functional medicine, it's actually helping maybe the more traditional medicine more than hurting, because it can allow focused resources on some of the things that it does better, like you acknowledged. So yeah, I think that's great that you're starting to see that reflected now being, being adopted and kind of rightfully included. You're right. You're absolutely right. I never fully thought about it in that way. It is. It's a, when we're able to help these people out, it unburdens the system that is so mired in disease management. We can help people that really surgical interventions, acute med medical care, pharmaceuticals. It is the most effective option. It is the least side effects for, for many, many people. But right now, the system, it's burdened. 
it's unsustainable. You know, economists will tell you that. Medical doctors that are in the mainstream system will tell you it's unsustainable. We have to do something different to see something different. And I feel like there's pockets of change happening that are that realize this. When you look at mainstream institutes like the Cleveland Clinic opening up a multi-million dollar functional medicine center and many other mainstream hospitals and medical institutions opening up functional medicine and integrative medicine institutes, it's not because they're disciples of some woo-woo sect. It's because the data speaks for itself. The science speaks for itself. And we have to do something different to see something different. So I think the people that are constantly warring each other are on the wrong side of history, that we're seeing people improve. We're seeing labs improve. We're seeing quality of life improves. We're seeing because of that, the cost of disease goes down. That's a positive thing. This should not be controversial. This should be, you know, you'd have to be pretty nefarious to be against improved labs, improved quality of life. So this is all positive all around as, as far as I see it. Yeah. So Gut Feelings is the name of the book. The Art of Being Well is the name of the podcast. Is there anywhere else you'd like to direct people to follow up on your work? No, those are the main places, drwillcole.com. We have new telehealth patient options open at this point. We have lots of free resources for people there. And yeah, the links to the podcast, the books are all there. But thank you, honestly, for have, giving me the opportunity. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. And we definitely want to have you on again. Anytime. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.